Thank you again to Brian and Denise and Michelin, and also to Rainer, who has been looking after us all morning. We are technologically a needy department, let me tell you. Let's uh, commit the time that we have to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would open your word to us, help us to appropriate from it what you would have us take. Visit us with your grace, your mercy, your love, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The song we should have sung, it only occurred to me later, it was Amazing Grace, because when I think of um, fear and love, I think of my father. My mother's name was Grace, and she was a formidable person, a wonderful person, but not a weak person. And Amazing Grace was my father's hymn for obvious reasons. He especially liked the line that said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace my fears relieved. So I, that has a special spot for me. But I'm going to talk about fear just a little bit. And uh, this one's for Denise because apparently she has this. Um, Fred Culbertson. I have had some interesting research getting ready for today. Fred Culbertson, uh, phobialist.com. On your lunch hour, if you're looking for something to do, uh, more than 450 clinically recognized debilitating fears or phobias. And one of the most widespread, according to Culbertson, especially among children, <clears throat> not sure what this is about Denise, is coolrophobia, which is the fear of clowns. I'd be afraid of that one. Here is one that we need to take seriously as educators because it gets in the way of learning. The fear of failure gets in the way of our own learning too. I think the nearest thing that I have to a phobia is this one, which is melissophobia. Uh, I never heard of that before, but it's a fear of stinging insects. I don't like things that sting me, or could. It's a bit ironic, uh, given the fact that every week I get a hypodermic injection against allergies, a sting if you like, and that doesn't bother me at all. I just don't like when I haven't booked an appointment with a wasp. <laughs> so that's melissophobia, not to be confused with melissophobia, which is the fear of endless reruns of Little House on the Prairie. But the most dominant of all the phobias, I wonder if you, can, if you can guess this one. The most dominant, the most prevalent fear, debilitating fear in the world, edging out even the fear of death as the number one fear. Do you know, does anybody know? Anybody? Well, I'll give you a hint. This is my prop. It's not connected because Rainer wouldn't let me. It's the fear of public speaking. Glossophobia, which is why the microphone is my visual aid. Closely related to glossophobia is seminarophobia, which I made up. Um, it's the fear of speaking before an audience of people who study theology for a living. Or it's what the lion fears when he's thrown into the den of Christians. And glossophobia is also inversely related, and this is a real one, to homilophobia or the fear of sermons. But I'm going to talk about John Donne for just a few minutes, John Donne and his sin of fear. And I'm going to use one of his works in particular to try and um, address this topic. Um, some observations on his life, because you can't really understand much about the poem, and you have the poem on that handout. It is the hymn to God the Father, in which he talks about his sin of fear. So just, just a very few points about the life of Dunn, and I hope you won't find this dull. I know you didn't sign up for my course, but 
tough. You did ask me to speak, or somebody did. He was born in the 14th year of Elizabeth Tudor's reign on the throne of England when Shakespeare was a Stratford schoolboy of eight years old. The great-grandnephew of Catholic martyr Sir, or Saint, depending on which side of the Tiber you prefer, uh, Thomas More. And he was born here in Bread Street, and by the way, so was John Milton. I didn't know that before. Uh, he was actually born a generation or so after Dunn, when Will Shakespeare, uh, I said that, was a Stratford schoolboy. Dunn's father was a prosperous Catholic ironmonger or hardware merchant. His mother was a member of the wealthy and powerful Moore clan, M-O-R-E, uh, the great niece of Sir Thomas Moore. Um, it was dangerous to be both Catholic and prosperous in the sometimes violently anti-Catholic London, especially the city was a, a hotbed of Puritan thought in uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign and there were uh, Catholic plots against her, or at least some of them were real, some of them were imaginary. Uh, certainly the fear of Catholic plotting was very real in the minds of Londoners. Dunn's father didn't die violently. He might have done as a Catholic, but he didn't. Um, he did die young, and he left his family of three children, including uh, John, fatherless, when Dunn was only four years old. So at four years, he becomes fatherless, uh, seven years after that, so he's 11 years old. What were you doing when you were 11 years old? He was here at Oxford um, taking his first university classes. He spent um, four years there. No, three, I'm sorry. Followed by three more at Cambridge, the other great English university, and never graduated from either institution, not because he didn't finish, but because Catholics weren't allowed to take a degree. You could do all the work, you could pay the money, you could take the courses. You didn't get the degree. Um, Catholic outsider with no university degree, Dunn found that the usual avenues to success in law, in the church, in public life were closed to him. But in 1598, he became the private secretary to this man, Sir Thomas Egerton, and he was a member of a different branch of the same powerful family, the Moore family that his mother had come from. Um, this side of the family, unlike Sir Thomas, were zealously Protestant, um, Puritan-leaning. Uh, good idea when Elizabeth is on the throne, not such a great idea uh, for Dunn as his employer. Dunn began to enjoy some literary success while he was working for Thomas Egerton. He was a man of letters and encouraged that sort of thing. And then Dunn really put his foot in it uh, when he secretly and without her parents' permission eloped with and married Egerton's 16-year-old niece, Anne, the daughter of Sir George Moore of Lowesley Manor. Her father was furious. Um, not only was um, Dunn sacked from his job, he was thrown into jail, briefly. I don't know what the charge was. There's no record of that. Seventeen years of desperate po poverty followed that with every year another child. This is Dunn's writing, every year another child. Uh, there will be ch 12 children in all, born to John and Anne, of which seven only survive infancy. Um, that's the shortest poem he ever wrote, by the way. And he did write that. John Dunn, and Dunn, undone. 
During those difficult years and after a long struggle of faith, he left the Catholic Church and entered the Anglican Communion. That's the Royal Chapel at uh, Windsor. And is ordained priest in the Catholic, or sorry, in the Anglican Church. And later the year, uh, the same year, is named Royal Chaplain to the new king, James I. But uh, shortly after those longed-for changes in their outward success had happened, uh, utterly exhausted, Anne died of a fever following the stillbirth of her 12th child in 15 years at the age of 33. And her tomb is here at St. Clement Danes in London. 1621, Dunn is named Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. Now that's a deanery worth having. Um, and becomes, by all accounts, even by those of his rivals, the most brilliant preacher of his day. His poetic work establishes him as one of the finest poets in language from that or any other day. His sermons are collected, or some of them, in devotions upon emergent con I can't read, sorry, devotions upon emergent occasions and several steps in my sickness, which is uh, published much later in 1624. His early trials and his frequent bouts of illness, he was um, in and out of pretty serious illness most of his adult life. They became, in Dunn's sermons and his poems, symptoms of the world's spiritual sickness and estrangement from God. So his experience of feeling, um, feeling the effects of various kinds of illness uh, led him to think about how much the world was broken and twisted and estranged from the Lord. So from that collection, a hymn to God the Father, uh, written probably while Anne was still alive, and you'll see why I think as we look at it just briefly, it became one of his, uh, he wasn't real shy, it became one of his favorite hymns, and as Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, he could have them sing it whenever he wanted, and he wanted quite a lot. So he would hear this pretty regularly. Dunn dwelt on the fact of death, dwelt on the fact that our life, I mean, after, let's see, what was it, five stillbirth, uh, stillbirths in his family, after the death of his own wife, you do begin to take a serious view of our, of our mortality and how close we are to death. This is a hymn to God the Father. You have it on the sheet or we'll look at it uh, stanza by stanza on the screen as well. After we go through it, I'll try and read it uh, again and put it back together that way. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? That sin where I begun is well, it could be several things, but it's probably here mostly he's thinking of original sin, the stain of Adam which we're all born with, the heritage of being alienated from God. Adam and Eve's decision came historically before us. It was done before, but we own it nevertheless. It is my sin, though it were done before. Canst thou forgive, sorry, wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? It sounds like St. Paul in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Note the punning contradiction here of run and still. You can't 
do both at the same time, run and be still, uh, unless you're in a John Donne poem. It points to the paradox of the Romans 7 illusion. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do want to do. I run and I'm still and I'm still and I'm running. So when you've done those things, when you've forgiven those sins, Dunn says to God the Father, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Um, that is, when you've done this, when you've forgiven me, you've not done or finished because I have more sins. But you also don't have done, D-O-N-N-E, uh, yet because he has more sins. And he also has more and more. He never got tired of those jokes. He told them over and over and over again all his life. He filled his sermons with jokes. Maybe it's where I get it. Um, he was alive to the, the liveliness of language and never got tired of seeing how the differences, how the different possibilities and permutations could be made to work to convey meaning. So, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Um, there's something serious here. He has more, he has and more. She was the golden girl, the girl born to a life of privilege and wealth and power and social prestige and dragged down to poverty and illness and ultimately to death. Uh, he was alert to the fact that his love for her, which was also expressed in their sexual life together, his love caused her death. It was in childbirth that she died. And he, that, that horrible paradox that the loving could be part of the reason that he lost her, it never left him. Because her life of, well, it was a pretty difficult life, because that had happened because of their impetuous marriage, their lack of permission from her family, Dunn never forgot that and never kept never stopped beating himself up over it. The second stanza, wilt thou forgive that sin by which I've won others to sin and made my sin their door. Ooh, that one. Um, the one who causes these little ones to offend, Jesus says in Matthew 18, would have been better off with a millstone tied around his neck and chucked into the sea. Can God forgive that? Can God forgive the sin by which I've won other people to sin, the sin that I do unthinkingly that makes someone else think it must be okay, and made my sins their door. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? I like wallowed, swinish. Um, so I'm virtuous and pious, and for a year I shun that sin, and then I wallow in it 20 other years, 20 times as long. So can God forgive these things? When thou hast done, when he's done that, he doesn't have done. Thou hast not done, for I have more. And now we come right to it. I have a sin of fear. That when I've spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. What could be more terrible than to be cast aside by God? I have to read something here. I hope I can find it without too much delay. I should have had it in front of me. There we go. This is from who else? No, it isn't there. 
It says it is. It's not. I found it. Sorry. This is from C.S. Lewis. What could be more terrible than to be cast aside by God? The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. Glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. He's writing this in a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Then he goes on, perhaps it seems rather crude to describe glory as the fact of being noticed by God, but this is almost the language of the New Testament. St. Paul promises to those who love God not that they will know him, but that they will be known by him. It's a strange promise. Does not God know all things at all times? But this promise that we will ultimately be known by God is dreadfully re-echoed in another passage in the New Testament. There we're warned that it may happen to any one of us to appear at last before the face of God and hear only the appalling words, I never knew you. Depart from me. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all things. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside. Or we can be welcomed, acknowledged, met, loved. So the fear is real and it's horrifying. But for done as for us, it becomes a sin of fear because as children of God, covered by the blood of Christ and named with his name, when we succumb to the fear of being cast aside, we're actually doubting his promise to us. We're saying that his word of acceptance, of reconciliation, of pardon can't be trusted. We come close to saying that we don't believe the price paid was enough for us to be accepted by God. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 multiplies the metaphors the way he does. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? He begins this long passage. Then there's an ellipsis that I've left out. And then he says, and such were some of you, unrighteous. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. Pick your metaphor, he says. It doesn't matter. You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're in, you're forgiven. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Well, Dunn's speaker knows all that, but the fear is so great that he boldly asks for personal assurance of his pardon. He says, but swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore, and having done that, thou hast done. Note that, but swear by thyself doesn't scan. It doesn't work as a line of poetry. Was done nodding? No. He added the but as if the emotion spilled over the top of the poetic form. 
He says, I have a sin of fear, but if you'll promise me personally, again, by what I can acknowledge is greater than my sin and my fear, then it will be enough. The speaker alludes to that passage in Hebrews where we're told that when God made a promise to Abraham, he didn't have anything better to swear by than himself. He swore by himself, so that's why Dunn's speaker says, swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, well, you know what he's going to say. Thou hast done in both senses. You're finished, but you also have John Dunn. And then you expect him to say something else. Oh, my thing is not working. You'd expect him to say, I have no more. Because at the end of every other verse, he says, you have not done for I have more. But at the end, he says, I fear no more. See, the pun doesn't work. If he said, I have no more, it would mean he didn't have more. And he did have more and more. But he didn't fear more, not anymore. Does that make any sense? When thou hast done, then thou hast done. I fear no more. When he became dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, Dunn commissioned a statue to be made. It was traditional. The dean always gets a statue somewhere in the church as a memorial. Dunn's, well, I should go back. It was the picture that you saw of himself in a burial shroud. Another reminder that death is real and it's close and we always need to be ready to meet God. They called it a memento mori, a reminder of mortality or death and of the need to be ready to meet God. When at last he did leave this life, his first biographer, Isaac Walton, who's famous for having produced the first real book on fishing, in English, by the way, Isaac Walton had this to say. He was earnest and unwearied in the search of knowledge with which his vigorous soul is now satisfied and employed in a continual praise of that God that first breathed it into his active body, that body, John Donne's body, which was once a temple of the Holy Ghost and has now become a small quantity of Christian dust. And he adds this, but I shall see it reanimated. After his death, after the death that he feared, after the death that we all fear, John Donne became a small handful of Christian dust. And Isaac Walton, another believer, with the promise of the resurrection and the promise of reunion with his great hero, said, but I shall see it reanimated. Because he's right. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, your promises often seem too big for us, but they're not too big for our fear. Thank you for this indescribable promise, the promise that one day we will be united with yourself, that we will fear no more, because you've sworn by yourself, and having done that, you have done, and each of us in your hand.